All right. Well, welcome to the School of Faith podcast. Uh, my name is Chris Nye, and my guest today is uh, Dr. Vince Bantu, who's joining us here. Um, and uh, we at the School of Faith are a part of Awakening Church in the Silicon Valley. If you do not know us, we are in San Jose, California. And Welcome. Thanks for listening and jumping in. My guest, Dr. Vince Bantu, is Assistant Professor of Church History and Black Church Studies at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California, where uh, he serves as a liaison to the William E. Panel Center for African American Church Studies and the network with African American churches, pastors, and students. Uh, Dr. Bantu earned his Ph.D., at uh, the Catholic University of America, and his dissertation married his interests in African Christianity and social identity. He's the author of some books and numerous articles, but the one um, I wanted to talk to you about today, Dr. Bantu, and the one I'm excited about is this book right here. It's called A Multitude uh, of All Peoples, and the subtitle is Engaging Ancient Christianity's Global Identity. Dr. Bantu, this is one of my favorite books of last year. I really loved it. It helped me as a pastor engage with a lot of questions people have around the faith, Um, I just gave kind of the credentials I found off of fuller.edu, but I'm curious, you know, if you could just give us more of the background of who you are, uh, where'd you grow up? Did you grow up in the church? Who are you? Uh, Just would love to, you know, get past the details of your biography and get to know you. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Chris. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, I'm actually originally born and raised uh, in St. Louis. Uh, so, yeah, from the Lou, from the STL. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, I, I, I um, you know, I did, uh, you know, grow up in the church. Um, you know, I, uh, yeah, coming up, my, um, you know, my family was kind of like uh, mixed, you know, in terms of like people uh, being involved in church and not like uh, coming up my, my, you know, as a kid, my, my dad wasn't around as a single parent household and, um, and he wasn't, you know, a believer or nobody else in my family was, but my, my mom was a strong believer and she, uh, you know, shared the gospel with me at a young age. And, and she always did it in a way um, that kind of put it like as a, as a kind of a personal decision, like not trying to, um, have it be just vicarious or anything. And so, um, and so I, I really, you know, remember kind of consciously making the decision to become a believer when I was really young, like maybe like six, seven years old and, and wanting to come to church. And, you know, I approached my pastor to be baptized and, um, yeah, so I, I, uh, you know, grew up, um, really passionate about evangelism from a young age. And, uh, and, you know, my church I grew up in was a, you know, real like small conservative, uh, real like strong, like kind of Bible church, like folk non-denominational, just focusing on evangelism. And yeah, so that was, that was, uh, that, you know, I was really involved in that, uh, in church, you know, when I was coming up, but it wasn't like, yeah, it, 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 at the same time, it wasn't like, uh, just kind of, you know, part of my, the culture around me, um, cause most of my family members other than my mom were not really involved in church. And, and so it was really much kind of, and, and certainly like none of the people in my, like, like West side, you know, neighborhood growing up in kind of an urban context. So, so it was definitely very much kind of like a, a conscious decision to really immerse myself in, in church. Wow. And so where did, um, higher education, how did that play into your story? Um, coming up from that kind of background, you know, it's a, it's a, it must be a long story or a long leap to go from being in church to getting a PhD in like Semitic languages and going into what you ended up going into. What was the Lord doing through that process? Yeah. Yeah. That, that was like really connected actually to um, my experience in church. Cause like, you know, yeah, I mean um, it it was really a, yeah, it was really like um, it's really kind of, um, you know, growing up, you know, church was always like, um, I kind of, you know, saw it as like a place of, of, of refuge and, um, you know, a place where I could really, uh, be, be safe. You know, I grew up in a, in a community where I often really felt kind of unsafe and, uh, and, and being a Christian and being really committed to trying to live a Christian lifestyle was kind of rare, uh, you know, in, in, in my context. And so, um, I, you know, I, and I, and I always kind of wrestled with, um, how to be, yeah, how to be a a Christian, but in a way that's fully me, um, because, you know, the church that I grew up in, 
wasn't really i mean it was great people they love the lord but it wasn't a lot of people that looked like me that were present in the church or that you know kind of acted or sounded or talked like like me and like my my neighborhood that i grew up in and i was always feeling like there was a disconnect between who i was and who i grew up around and then like my church and kind of what a, what being a christian was presented and what that kind of looked like so i always felt like it was a disconnect and i remember even trying to bring friends to church and they'd be like nah man i'm good like <laughs> you know um and 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 again it wasn't like uh anything overt but it was just i think a lot of indirect messages being sent that to be a christian means like to just completely change who you are culturally speaking um, and, and, uh, and I was always kind of just felt stuck with that. And I honestly kind of felt like that, well, that's just how it is. And I just need to, um, I just need to do that as well. And, and, you know, we just need to kind of assimilate culturally. Um, and I just kind of put that on myself as well. And, um, and when I, I felt called to ministry and so I, I immediately wanted to go study and I was like, man, I want to, I want to go study so I can, you know, get more prepared and learn more about the Bible. And I think it was really, uh, even, you know, I think, in, in that experience also of, of like going into Christian college and seminary and, and studying uh, theology and biblical studies. And again, not, not seeing myself reflected or seeing my community reflected uh, in the, in the curriculum or in the teachings, it was really concerning. Um, and, uh, and I think that was really when I, um, when the Lord really spoke to me and, uh, and really just impressed it more, more deeply on my heart that um, it, both in ministry context, but also in academia, that, that there's a really strong need for people to see themselves reflected. And that's actually something that God desires. God doesn't want anybody, me or my community, you know, from the west side of St. Louis or anybody to feel like they have to assimilate or change who they are in order to come to him in faith. Um, but then in fact, like a lot of who we are is, is made in his image and is, and is, is really a purpose. Like I, I had never really known that and that, and God really just spoke that to me through the word, uh, really powerfully at that, at that time. And so, you know, I, um, I think that was really, that was really where kind of the, the call to, uh, you know, furthering kind of furthering my call into academics as well, really came into, into play where I really felt called to go into academics, but specifically, you know, to learn more about the full, kind of the fuller history of the church and, and of Christian expression and just how diverse and how, uh, how inclusive and, 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 uh, and different and distinct, uh, you know, Christian expression and theology and worship can really, can really be. Um, and, uh, and, and really just to just, I just love learning about that myself and then just, yeah, be able to share it, uh, with the church, but also with the academy, uh, and just to, um, you know, really hopefully try to give a more, uh, inclusive and diverse picture of, of Christian theology and, and church history in the classroom as well. Uh, maybe hopefully a little bit better than what I had received at first. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, that was, that's, that's kind of the, hopefully the short version. <laughs> I could talk to you about that for another hour, man. That is so cool. And I think, you know, just as an encouragement, I, f I, I feel just as, as I'm from Portland, I'm a white guy, like hearing your voice and seeing your scholarship was, uh, you know, if that was your intent to, 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 to really share what you've learned, I just think you've done a great job through this book and it's become a huge help to me and been recommending it a lot. I think, what your book does that's so interesting to me, and again, for those of you guys listening, uh, this book is called A Multitude of All Peoples, and um, just a really accessible but scholarly book, very thoughtful and scholarly, but I don't think it's above anybody's um, head. I think you've written it really well, but you really, you know, I think flipped the script in a great way of a lot of people see Christianity as uh, it started in Europe in the year 1500, uh, for a lot of us Protestants, uh, it started in Europe by Germans in you know the Middle Ages or in the 1500s, and that's what Christianity is. That's its history. And with you going further back, the line that I think is, and correct me if I'm wrong, some, somewhat your thesis at the beginning of the book is: is Christianity is not becoming a global religion; it has always been a global religion. And the story is typically told, like I said, that it came from Europe, it was established in America, and then after its establishment in America, got exported to the global world, and now it's this global religion. Can you just speak to what is wrong with that story? 
Yeah, that I think, you know, I, I guess, you know, uh, that's a great question, Chris. Um, you know, I would say maybe two things that that the two issues that come up with that with that story, which is definitely the the story that I got. I mean, it's kind of, you know, like, you know, again, nobody really says it as as bluntly as 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 you or I would say it now. But that's really what's being communicated. And it's kind of similar to what I was sharing earlier about how coming up, uh, you know, nobody nobody in my church or in many churches told people uh, you know, especially from certain cultures or certain colors or hues that you, you need to change who you are and, and like, you know, in order to be a Christian, but, but that's still communicated in, in various indirect ways. And it's kind of the same thing with, um, with this, with this kind of narrative of Christian history. I mean, one way that it's told, I think, is that, um, and I see this, you know, uh, you know, in all the time in, in various seminaries and divinity schools that, that, you know, questions of like diversity or or global church or uh kind of yeah just different cultural experiences in the church like even in the classroom and seminaries those kinds of questions or conversations don't come up until like you get into like modern history or modern theology classes or kind of 1800s and later uh like the last two centuries but but those kind of words like global and diverse and multicultural uh those words don't even pop up when you're talking about kind of like the core of your systematic theology classes or 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 like the early church or medieval church history. So it really does lend to this narrative that you just laid out that that Christianity just kind of went along this Western trajectory uh, through the Roman Empire and Western Europe and then, you know, then the Reformation and then coming over to North America. And then in the 18 and 1900s, then it went from the West to the rest. Um, and 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 we we communicate that in a lot of different ways, and I think one problem with that is it's, it's just not historically accurate, and it doesn't it doesn't capture the fullness of church history that the gospel yes went through Europe, but it also went east as well, and it also went south, and it went every direction, uh, and there's so many different communities. Um, that I mean, I coming up, uh, many of the I mean, one of the goals of the book was to really try to hopefully, like you said, like make it accessible, like uh, full of information, but, you know, accessible enough that somebody could pick it up and in one shot could get, hopefully, my, my hope is that people would get introduced to maybe some names and some places in church history that are really pivotal and that are really important for certain parts of the world and for global church history, but maybe that people haven't heard of before. Like, you know, even, even a non-church historian, uh, even just a regular average Joe has probably heard the name Martin Luther before, or has heard the name Thomas Aquinas, or, you know, uh, you know, has, has heard the name Jonathan Edwards, like, we might not be able to tell you a whole lot about him, but everybody's heard their names, you know, but, but there are so many on the flip side, though, not only average Joe, but even many church historians or theologians have never even heard the names like Narsai or Walata Petros or, or Zarya Kov or Shenouda. And these are these names are just as pivotal and just as crucial as these other Western names. So the, the goal of the book is really to make these other names, these unsung heroes, more just household names, and even just kind of to introduce uh, a lot of these names and places uh, to people. And that's, um, you know, that's, I think that's, 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 that's part of the, once we see that there's this fuller history, it shows that that, that trajectory that we talked about is, is, is inaccurate. But, but more importantly, I would say the last thing about why it's problematic is that, again, it, it actually really, um, exacerbates uh, a really significant problem because, as I was mentioning earlier, a lot of my my passion for this book and really for my scholarship is really evangelistic and it's really missional more than anything, more than academic. Um, and to me, academics is just like a vehicle or just a mechanism in service of the gospel. And and so you know, I think that there one 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 passion of mine, for example, is evangelism uh, and and apologetics and missions with with different religious communities, especially like in, in my context, like in the black community, but in other places as well, who, you know, they have this perception that Christianity is like a Western or what they'll say is like, it's a white man's religion. And and the narrative that we as believers tell will just exacerbate that that perspective. And it, and, on, and it often pushes people away from the gospel and people will reject the gospel, but not on like theological or like, you know, even philosophical grounds, but on cultural grounds. Like it's not, it's not like there's a, a like it's not like there's often an issue with the claims of Jesus or the claims of, of the Bible, or it's not, it's not often that people are atheist or have scientific objections, but it's often a cultural issue. Like, oh, that's not, that's a white man's religion. It's not a religion for my people. 
And, and, and again, the way we tell history often really just exacerbates that. And even if we do try to talk about, oh, well, there's global, you know, you know, there's Christians, there's more Christians in Africa and, and Latin America and Asia than there are in the West. So that's not true. But then someone can always push back and say, well, yeah, but how did it get there? Like, how did it, how did it in the, in recent history through colonialism and missions and globalization like and oftentimes even even when we look at global christianity today it's it's so often a a, a western americanized version of christianity that's often been kind of like shipped over into other other cultural contexts um and and so that can actually even exacerbate this dynamic that it that it that it was mediated through the west and it came from the west to the rest and so i think that's why um it can be damaging to really kind of tell the story in that in the way that we do that that we you know i mean i remember in church history class uh in college uh the 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 first time that i ever saw or heard a black or brown person being mentioned uh in having to do with church history uh was in like the maybe the last week of class when we talked about like modern black theology or and so it it can it, that can exacerbate that perspective and 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 lead someone thinking that that people of color had nothing to do with christianity you know at its foundations and so that's really the purpose of the book is just to fill in those uh, hopefully fill in some of those gaps wow so, so much to to unpack there um Thank you. That's so helpful. And I think you've achieved it. I, 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 I saw, you know, in the start of your book, I was just reviewing it in prep for our talk and really in a second reading of it, saw at the start of your book, you really setting up the role that politics kind of played in, in the early start with like Rome and even just in how you were just talking about the way we tell the story, it's kind of been told the classic way history is told, which is through political powers, who was in power when. And I just wonder, as you have studied this so much, what are your reflections about the role of politics and church history and how that ends up kind of twisting the tale? Like, what what do we have to be aware of? What do we have to combat against as we're currently living in historical moments, you know, and thinking about how this time will be told, um, let alone how church history has been told. What what role does does politics in your mind play with how history is told in the church? Oh yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it there, it's I think it's it's definitely a factor that we have to always like kind of weigh and 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 you know really consider uh, when we're approaching certainly historical texts because. Um, you know, at, at a lot of these, for example, a lot of these councils that I talk about in the book, um, there, I mean, now, you know, I don't want to reduce any of these theological debates that happen to merely kind of political debates that are, that are just kind of masquerading as theological conversations. Like a lot of, some people have made that argument and I don't, I don't go there. I mean, I think a lot of the priests and the bishops and the monks who were, who were on the various sides of these theological debates uh, you know, uh, whether it's Council of Nicaea or Council of Constantinople or Council of, of Chalcedon or in, you know, some of the Persian councils, uh, you know, Synod of Bardadisho or uh, Synod of Ishak or, you know, there's all these different councils that, I mean, I think there were real serious legitimate theological questions that people were, that people were deeply motivated um, that people were getting it right, that, that faith and doctrine was being communicated in a way that was, was proper. Um, but at the same time, so to me, it's not an either or, but it's a both and that there were also questions of ethnicity and culture and identity that were at play in a lot of these conversations. And there was questions, as you said, of, of politics and of control. Like, I mean, some of these, um, you know, a lot of these uh, different councils there, you know, uh, even even the fact that, you know, many of them were convened uh, under the auspice of and. Uh, and kind of with the blessing of certain emperors, whether that was in the Roman Empire or the Persian Empire, um, and that they're, you know, um, and that and a lot of the outcomes of them even involved military powers. Like I, I focus a lot on the uh, the Council of Chalcedon in 451 and kind of the schism that 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 entailed for so many Christians in the in you know different parts of the world. Um, but but you know there was the um, you know, kind of the the side that won out, so to speak, uh, at least in the Roman Empire, 
Um, again, you know, there are other parts of the world for which that council was really irrelevant in many ways, and they were kind of doing their own thing. But but in the Roman Empire, um, that was kind of the dominant position. And so Christians like in Egypt or in Syria and Arabia that rejected that particular uh, formula of the faith, they were severely persecuted, and not only by another faction of the church, but also that faction of the church that won the day had imperial backing and there was there was financial and even military resources that were put at their disposal and i talk about in the book how you know uh, the chalcedonian view which was the dominant position in rome that became and still is the dominant position in much of western christendom even even after the protestant reformation most protestants still will you know kind of uh, just without having really a dog in that fight and not having really explored that because it's like 1500 years ago we'll just kind of take the the chalcedonian definition and even in many of our church history textbooks we will often not even explore a lot of the communities that i'm that i'm looking at in this book because precisely of their christology that was not uh that was different was at variance with the dominant kind of roman position uh but at that time you know part of the tension especially that developed in the four and five hundreds was that the the the, the so-called chalcedonian view which was the dominant view in the roman empire was trying to impose itself on many of the churches in North Africa and, and the Middle East that didn't accept that position. And there was even, you know, attempts at really enforcing it and bishops would come in to, you know, some of these places, you know, some of these from Constantinople or Rome would come in to North Africa or Middle East and say, hey, you better, you better, you better accept our formula of faith or we're going to kill you. And they were saying that with a hundred Roman soldiers behind them. So, you know, there was definitely, you know, political and military, uh, especially when you, you know, I get into, you know, in the book, especially uh, as this tension grew, uh, the Roman emperors became, you know, exceedingly involved in trying to force, uh, you know, kind of reconciliation or, or really uh, kind of um, assimilation throughout the empire, uh, especially, for example, Emperor Justinian in the 500s, uh, you know, he called for another council, the second council of Constantinople in the mid 500s, and was trying to really kind of force a, a kind of a, a uniform doctrine in, uh, in the Roman Empire. And a lot of that was, I mean, especially for him as an emperor, it was much more politically motivated than it was um, you know, theologically, he just was concerned about the Roman Empire having one dominant <clears throat> theology. Now, there were certainly, again, bishops and, and monks who were theologically motivated that, that the, that the Miaphysite, so-called the one nature, kind of the other side of that, that, that Christology got it wrong. So again, not everybody was pure. It wasn't like everyone was purely politics, but, but for sure, that was definitely a, a part of it, especially when you look at the fact that some of these regions that from the dominant position were the, were the rebels. In fact, I, I had to, I, I had to, I had to actually, uh, I didn't now I'm, I'm trying to be a, a fair professor. So I didn't like mark them down for this or anything, but I did read a paper the other day from a student that was like using this same kind of weaponized language that happens all the time, even in, again, modern church history textbooks that, that a lot of these early Egyptian or Syrian uh, so-called monophysites, but they prefer to be called miaphysites. Even in our, even in most of our like modern church history textbooks, we'll use this kind of language that, well, they were the rebels and they were the, you know, the Roman church got it right. They were in a balanced position and, and the other Christians, they were too far to one side or too far to the other, but the Roman church in the Council of Chalcedon had the, they had the perfectly blended theology and Christology. And, uh, and then they'll use the, again, this weaponized terms like the, the rebels or the dissidents or the, the, you know, kind of the, the insurgents. And I, I caught a student of mine doing that in one of the papers too. And I was like, I was like, you know, like, and we, I was like, have you been listening in class? Like, yeah. so I, I was like, Hey, like watch out for this, but I, I didn't grade him down for it. Cause I don't, I don't do that. Like I, I don't grade people down for disagreeing with me, but I did have to keep it real. I did have to keep it a hundred and be like, Hey, like, you know, I think we should watch, watch stuff like that because from their perspective, they were actually the Orthodox and it was the Roman church. That was the, that were the heretics. And I wouldn't go, I wouldn't go in that direction either. But as you said, it, you know, it kind of depends on who's writing the story. Yes. Yes. Well, let's tell the story correctly here for our listeners then, you know, and what you do in this book so well is I think you explore a couple of regions that I would say are just underrepresented for sure, but also sometimes completely ignored in our history of the church. So like you said, the earliest most people can say is Rome, then Rome to Europe, then Europe to America. But some of the areas you explore, particularly um, Africa, North Africa, and Ethiopia, Egypt and Ethiopia, 
the Middle East and even beyond the Middle East into what you call the Silk Road and to Persia. Could you just help us understand, and again, considering some of the people listening, man, they don't they they, they have a very limited understanding of church history. What um what was the story with those regions um, and maybe highlight some of the importance of, of, of each of those regions? Because I was really struck particularly um, with the role of Ethiopia. That was a really cool exploration. I learned a ton of the, some of the theologians and writers that were there. Um, so yeah, um, and also I've probably, I probably missed an area or two, but those are the three that I think are, 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 are often completely ignored, Africa um, and, and the Middle East and, and beyond to the Silk Road and Persia, but other, other, other places that you feel like, let's correct the story and let's, let's highlight these areas. Yeah, definitely. Like, I mean, I would say maybe, uh, you know, just two things, at least to start out, like in terms of correcting the story, uh, again, I mean, and again, I mean, even if like folks, you know, haven't done a whole lot of church history, I mean, I can just summarize it to say that, um, as I mentioned, this is I, the only the only kind of church history or date or anything that I'd, I guess I'd want to emphasize that I think is important is, uh, as I mentioned just now, uh, and a lot of folks may not know, but real quick. So the Council of Chalcedon was in the year 451, and that was a Roman church council, right? That was a that was a kind of an empire-wide council in the Roman Empire where they wanted to decide what is the best way to talk about Jesus being fully God and fully human. You know, now one thing I want everybody to be, I'm, I'm you know, I'll just say this really simply, like everybody, for, for the most part, almost everybody in the early church at that time believed and most, you know, almost all Christians still today believe that Jesus is fully God and fully human. So that was not really what the argument was about. The argument was about how do we talk about that? How do we word yeah. it? How do we phrase it in a way that captures, you know, the full the fullness of divinity and fullness of humanity? Because all Christians believe Jesus was fully divine and fully human. Well, the, the Council of Chalcedon decided that the best way to talk about it or to word it was that he has one person, Jesus is one person, uh, but he has two natures, two physis. So that's where you get this kind of late, kind of language of diaphysite or two natures, right? Well, many of the Christians in uh, in kind of the North and East Africa and the Middle East didn't really agree with that. And a lot of it was over language and terminology that that didn't really make sense uh, in some of their languages, especially when some of their bishops would translate that into other languages. It didn't, it didn't really make sense. It, it sounded to them like the dominant kind of Roman church was saying that there's two different Jesuses. Uh, now, now, to be fair, that's not what the Roman church was saying, like the Bishop Leo, he wrote a famous tome, and that's not what he was saying, but that's how it was, was received. And so they rejected it and said, no, Jesus has one nature. Now, on this, in the same token, the Western church rejected much of the North and East African and Middle Eastern theology as well. And they, they also, in turn, misunderstood their theology and said, oh, well, well you're saying he only had one nature, so, so you guys don't really believe Jesus is really human. You think he was only divine because you're saying one nature. That's not what they believe, though. That's not what they were saying. But that's how that's how it was caricaturized at the time. Um, and also the Western church centered in Constantinople and Rome had more power. So all sides were really misunderstanding each other. But the side with more power won out. And again, to this day, to like this is still a very serious issue to this day. And many of us at Protestants in the U.S. It's like, oh, wait, why is this a big deal? And it might not feel like a big deal to us. But again, I just want to say that a lot of these churches that that are served in the book, many of them still have, they're, they're still around today, and they still their 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 descendants are still their traditions are still alive, and they are still written off often as being viable uh, churches and being orthodox churches, even by many uh, Protestants who don't who will sometimes. Re, again, even many church history textbooks that are written, they're oftentimes written by scholars who are kind of just writing in the same kind of Western bias that the bishops in the 400s had. <laughs> and, they will, and they'll say things that are inaccurate. They'll say things like, well, those Christians, they didn't really, they're not real Christians because they didn't believe Jesus was really human. That is not at all what they believe. Uh, but oftentimes in, in, in many of our church history textbooks, they, the, the label of heretic will be applied to these communities without actually even citing their theologians. Because oftentimes their wow. theologians wrote in African and Asian languages that most Western scholars don't even read in. And so they won't even have read 
you know, theologians like Timothy Elaris or Dioscorus of Alexandria or Severus of Antioch or Benjamin of Alexandria or Philoxenus of Babu. Uh, they won't even have read or even know those names. But if you go read any of those names, none of those people I just named would ever say anything like Jesus was not really human. He was only divine. They completely believe that Jesus is fully God and fully human. Their argument, though, is that after the incarnation, that the humanity and divinity of Jesus were merged into one nature. That's why they say there's one nature. So the, the issue is not... Yeah, the issue is like, is this is this whole language about one and two natures, and so those those kind of sides separated, and and again though that uh, so I think it's that's one thing is in terms of telling the story right is that that all of these sides in this debate were all Christians, and and this isn't just me saying that because there actually have been ecumenical statements that have been made by like Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox and some of these what are called Oriental Orthodox churches that are around today that have said similar things to what I'm saying right now. That basically like we were just kind of misunderstanding each other 1500 years ago and we're all Christians. We all believe, we're all believing the gospel. We just kind of misunderstood each other. Like that's not just me saying that. So, but, so I think that's one aspect of correcting the story is that this is, this is part of the household of faith. Um, and then, but then the other thing I'll say is that they also produce a lot of really rich and really great theology. Um, I mean, there's so much to talk about, but maybe just to highlight, for example, like one example is uh, one of my favorite theologians is Ephraim the Syrian. Ephraim the Syrian is a name that is that he is really not known, um, but he's one of the greatest and most prolific writers in the history of the church. But one of the reasons he's not known is because he wrote in a language called Syriac, and that's not a language that most even church historians know or work with. And so uh, he didn't write in Greek and Latin like many of the other church fathers and that we are more familiar with, you know, John Chrysostom or Gregory of Nazianzus or some of these other people. But he wrote just as much. And one of the really cool things about Ephraim is that he was from an area called Orhoi or Edessa. And that's where the Syriac language was dominant. And he also did theology through the mechanism of poetry. And so he, he wrote theology, but in the form of poetry, and he wrote in the fourth century at the same time as some of the early kind of greats in the kind of the center, central Roman Empire. But he, by doing theology in the form of poetry, he was actually reshaping the narrative of how theology is done. And it was in a way that was a lot more relevant to his cultural context over there, which the form of poetry that he did, it wasn't just poetry like written, but it was actually a, an event. It was something that was lived and communal and people all gathered around and heard these poems recited and it was music and, and a choir and, and it was just a very communal kind of thing. And he actually, this was a, a style of art that was from his native Syrian town of Ohoy. And he took that and used it to uh, communicate the gospel and to teach people theology. And, and he, his writings are actually some of the considered the finest compositions of this uniquely Syrian poetic genre of literature and of art that in the history of that art form. And, and he's also a church, church father and, and, a, and one of the foundational theologians. So it's just, an, I think, a, a great example, again, of what I was talking about earlier about how just the flexibility, even in the earliest years of the church, of how Christians in different places found unique ways according to their own culture um, and the other thing about Ephraim is that he also, uh, at one way that he was distinct from a lot of the other more Western church fathers, was that he had a very strong emphasis on nature and on creation and how and how God speaks through creation. And it's for, just as an example, like it's been really it's been really cool to like uh, share about about this whole kind of you know branch of church history or these branches of church history, uh, especially with the whole church, but especially with you know people groups like my own or others that have really been you know, hurt by the church and, and traumatized by certain expressions of the church to see that there has actually been like, uh, you know, other examples of Christianity. Uh, just as an example, like, I, I you know, I've, I've loved sharing about Ephraim and his whole, you know, kind of uh, creation focus uh, on, on church and the way that he sees creation as something that literally speaks. And, and that's been something that has really connected in, in opportunity, you know, I've had an opportunity to teach, you know, church history and theology in, in some Native American uh, Christian schools and seminaries and contexts. And, and that's been something that I found is really connected with them because many indigenous cultures also have a high value on, on the voice of creation and how creation speaks and engages with us. And that's something that hasn't really been a part of a lot of Western Christianity. And so oftentimes that, you know, some of them have shared with me, that's something that an aspect of their culture that they haven't really been able to see as how do we incorporate this and how do we, how do we do this as Christians? Because the way Christianity was presented to us, like it was very, 
kind of oppressive and it was also very westernized and we didn't see that there was a place for this aspect that it would, they were almost at odds with each other um and so a lot of them have said well like i really connect with ephraim the syrian and, and other early syriac theologians and and this was like in the 300s this was at the beginning like at the foundational years of the church and that there were there were people who who uh, again embrace christianity in in ways that are unique to them and i mean last thing i'll last example I'll say that connects with my people is especially, you know, when we talk about traumatizing uh, examples of, of kind of, you know, Western Christendom is, you know, especially for people of African descent, the way that Jesus has been consistently portrayed looking like kind of like a Scandinavian person or looking like a Northern European, right? That, that's been very theologically and, and psychologically traumatizing for many people, but, you know, especially for black people who have on the flip side been taught, you know, that blackness is a sign of a curse or is a sign of, of depravity uh, in much of Western Christendom. And so when you mentioned Ethiopia, I mean, it's just so, uh, it's, been, it's been so encouraging for me, but also for many, as I share a lot of this history in black circles and black Christian circles, to see the, uh, some of the earliest paintings and, and manuscript drawings of, of, of angels and Jesus and Mary and biblical figures, all you know, in Ethiopian manuscripts looking black with black skin and African hair. Uh, that's just a very empowering vision and, and, and visual uh, aid to see that there were, that again, Ethiopia was a Christian nation since the 300s. Uh, and it's one of the oldest Christian nations in the world. And, and it freely adopted Christianity. There was no colonialism or slavery uh, or, or anything like that. And it's actually, Ethiopia to this day is the only predominantly black country that's never been colonized by a European power. And it's also a nation that's been a Christian nation and still is predominantly Christian since the 300s. And they have their own indigenous expression of Christianity that has its own worship and its own architecture and its own hierarchy and its own theological language. And, and it's completely, I mean, it's literally classified as an indigenous African religion. Uh, and so it's like, um, and, and again, like its own art, uh, its own art expressions that again, uh, were, were drawn at a time when, you know, the, uh, even before and during the trans-Saharan slave trade and the trans and transatlantic slave trade, when African bodies were being trafficked and as, as cargo and being, and treated less than animals and, and blackness was seen as a, as a depraved thing that you have this beautiful tradition in Ethiopia that stands as a, as a contrast to all of that, that celebrates blackness and celebrates black beauty. Uh, and also, understands Jesus and Mary and and angels to look like black people and to reflect the beauty of blackness is also another I think you know just yeah encouraging uh, encouraging example uh, from this again from these kind of untold stories so helpful and and I uh, I love that we, we actually have a number of, of uh, Ethiopian and Ethiopian American people in our church who uh, you know are 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 very familiar with Ethiopia's role in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church and even educated me on a lot of that. So to read your deep history on it was so cool. In fact, I pulled this quote out. I think I think this might have been in your section on Ethiopia. Um, you say in the mid fourth century, the African churches, oh yeah, of e of Egypt and Ethiopia, upheld the doctrine of Jesus's divinity, while the ruler of the Roman Empire was attempting unsuccessfully to impose the belief that Jesus was a created being. This goes back to your thing about uh, Christology, but I wanted to highlight it after what you said because. I think one thing that's important for us to learn as Christians is the way that the multi-ethnic and global church um, corrects one another and helps one another. And it, after reading your book, it got me thinking, man, without these people that you're celebrating, without the Ephraims and without the Ethiopian church and the Egyptian church and the churches in Syria and the Middle East, we would not be Orthodox without their work. And to ignore them would have been to ignore a healthy, holistic gospel that includes all nations, that Jesus came to preach the gospel to all nations and to send us out into all nations. And it, it truly became an all nations thing, but it underscored the deep importance of needing one another and needing, needing the, the church in Rome needed the Ethiopian and Egyptian church to be Orthodox. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that, even in our present, circ uh, our present circumstance, you do a ton of teaching, you travel into different contexts, black churches, white churches, I'm sure all sorts of, sorts of multi-ethnic and cultural churches. What do you feel like, um, 
as I reflected on that quote from yours of like, what is that role even today for us in the body of Christ? And, and what can we do better? Where can we grow with some of that? Yeah, that I, man, that's a, yeah, that's a great, um, that's a great example. Cause, um, yeah, I mean, um, you know, just to, yeah, just to flesh it out a little bit for the, the, the listeners, you know, um, that, yeah, I mean, that was something that even in preparing the book that I wasn't really as aware of and was really encouraged to hear about that, you know, yeah, as you mentioned, Chris, like, um, in the, and, and in the fourth century, uh, when Christianity came into Ethiopia and it was embraced by King Azana, that was actually at a time of a lot of theological, uh, especially in the Roman Empire, a lot of theological upheaval. And 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 another reason why this was important to me is that you know one of the things that 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 you know uh, often gets said, uh, especially in by many non-Christian religious groups in in the black community or in other contexts is that you know christian theology and doctrine was all just invented by emperor constantine and and christianity just came out of the roman empire and and i you know that the 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 aspect that you pointed to actually speaks to the contrast of that actually actually constantine and especially his son almost kind of like normalized heresy (laughs) yes and and actually to your point that uh, it was actually African theologians in the fourth century that were some of the strongest voices of orthodoxy that that you know for, again for folks that maybe haven't done a lot of church history there was a there was a group in the in the fourth century called Arians and they uh, they believed that Jesus wasn't God you know that 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 he was like lesser than God and that that you know that was a that was a doctrine that at first you know in the first kind of big Roman council the Roman emperor agreed with the Orthodox church and said, Oh yeah, you're, you know, you're right. You know, that's not right. And Jesus is God. And, and uh, that wasn't the first time, you know, any Christian had said that, but it was the first time that there was there. In fact, it was the first time there was someone who was saying the opposite. And so therefore there was a council that needed to be called to kind of correct that. But then after that council, the emperor Constantine kind of was wishy-washy on that. And he was actually persecuting African theologians like Athanasius, who was the Pope of Egypt, uh, who was one of the foundational theologians who really, who really uh, argued strongly for the d- divinity of Christ against the Arians. That Constantine actually uh, later was supporting Arians and was exiling Athanasius. Uh, and it was actually during one of his exiles when the, the emperor kicked him out of his, you know, position as the Pope of Egypt. Uh, that was actually, it was during that time of kind of transition and, and chaos that um, uh, that and then, well, actually, after Constantine's when his son took over, Constantius was the Roman emperor. He was a devout Arian, and and he, you know, so he he was uh, really trying to push that and and really impose that theology throughout the Roman Empire. Again, the theology of Jesus is not God. So you know, in the mid three hundreds in the Roman Empire, one of the most powerful empires in the world that had just allegedly kind of become Christian. Uh, the dominant, you know, the leader was promoting a, a, the- a theology that said Jesus wasn't God, and and he was continuing to exile Athanasius, who was the Pope of Egypt, and 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 was trying to suppress his orthodox teaching. And it was during that time that Ethiopia became a Christian nation. And so, you know, uh, the, you know that that was through another story uh, through a, a Syrian missionary who came and evangelized the king of Ethiopia named Ezana, and he embraced Christianity. So when the Roman emperor heard about this, he was thinking like, oh. Okay, Ethiopia just became, or it was actually called Axum or Agazi at that time. Uh, okay, they just became Christian, and they're kind of to the south of Egypt. I'm having trouble controlling Egypt, the Egyptian church, because they they believe Jesus is God, and I don't want them to believe that. So if I can, I just heard that Ethiopia became Christian. So if I can kind of persuade them to be to embrace my brand of Christianity, that can kind of like team up on Egypt from both sides, from the south and the north, and kind of bring them into submission. Uh, but it didn't work. And the Ethiopian church rejected it and said, no, like we believe Jesus is God. And in fact, some of the earliest inscriptions in the Ethiopian language called Ge'ez actually talk about Jesus being God. And so, and and this is so pivotal because again, these are some of the earliest African writings, period, like in sub-Saharan Africa. So some of the, you know, and, and these are some of the earliest inscriptions in the Ethiopian language, which to this day is the only sub-Saharan African writing system in use. And so this is just shows how the, the not just like Christianity, but, the, you know, orthodox, pure, like gospel teaching Christianity is at the heart of African identity and was written at a time when the Roman Empire was actually kind of being swayed by heresy. Uh, and in Egypt, as Chris, as you mentioned, Egypt and Ethiopia were united in orthodoxy. And at that time, Africa was was really leading in orthodoxy, whereas Europe was slipping into heresy. And so, you know, it just, um, you know, and again, it, like you said, we need each other. We all need each other back then. And we need each other today 
Um, and, and that's why we need to be talking and partnering with each other. Um, but I think that, you know, just an, a modern example of that ancient kind of uh, example where you have, you know, kind of a, uh, you know, now churches of African descent that in, I, I would say in many ways are, are more orthodox uh, than many churches of European descent, uh, I think are around like justice issues. I mean, we're living in a time today in the 21st century where, um, you know, I think there, there are many people who are really rightfully crying out for justice and we're looking for that to really come from the church and, and, uh, and, and, and as it should, because, you know, the Lord and, and the gospel and the scriptures call us to work for justice and to be agents of justice in this world and to, you know, um, uh, and to fight and strive for justice. But yet some of the loudest voices that speak against, you know, biblical values like social justice actually come from Christian leaders, you know, especially many, uh, you know, uh, Anglo-American, uh, white evangelical Christian leaders will, will boldly say that things like social justice is not a part of the gospel, <laughs> that, that the social justice is not the work of the church. And I'm sorry, but that's heretical. <laughs> that's, yeah. I mean, when you look at the quality, when you look at, when you look at how Jesus delineates the sheep from the goats, <laughs> uh, it has everything to do with social justice and how how you treat the most marginalized is a reflection of how you treat Jesus himself. But again, this is and, I, you know, I'm not trying to romanticize. I think that, you know, uh, that we in the black church have a lot of growth and, and, you know, it's not perfect by any means. But but when it comes to that aspect, that's something that the black church has consistently been uh, a lot better at is understanding the integral role of justice work in the gospel, whether it was fighting against slavery or segregation or lynchings or Jim Crow, the black church is and always has been the greatest institution in the black community and has been at the center of, of, of justice movements and fighting for rights uh, and empowerment for, for black people. And, and there's been a, lo a lot more of a holistic kind of um, uh, expression, and I get into this in my other book, Gospel Hymeno, but but again, and again, I think there's a lot of great things in, you know, like more like dominant cultural, like white theology, but one of the things, especially I see this in the in the academy, but it, it filters into the church too, talking about this justice thing is like, there's kind of like this liberal conservative binary um, that, that, you know, is really a political and kind of a larger uh, American dynamic, but it's filtered into a lot of white theology that you have liberal and conservative theology. And, and I'm paraphrasing and I'm kind of, I'm kind of generalizing, but I think it's true in a lot of ways that, you know, liberal Christian institutions strongly emphasize justice uh, and equality and human rights, but there's not a lot of emphasis on like truth and that, and like, you know, Jesus is the only way and that biblical values and biblical morals and biblical standards are universal and, and, and are all for all people. And then on the other hand, you have conservative thought where there is a more of an emphasis on truth and biblical morals and personal ethics, but there's not a, a vision for justice and that justice is a part of that. So you kind of like have these two camps in you know, white seminaries and universities and even denominations have split along these two lines. And, and, and really in a way, the white church has kind of like took the gospel and like split it in two and kind of picked which half of it they're going to emphasize. But again, one of the ways that I think the black church can be helpful and, and instructive to a lot of dominant white theology is the fact that you cannot separate those two things. You cannot separate the truth from justice. And that's, that's, I think, another way, just like in the fourth century, that's a way that maybe the dominant voices of theology could really learn a thing or two from, you know, a lot of churches, uh, you know, uh, Latinx churches and indigenous and, 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 and African American churches, uh, I think are a lot, usually a lot more orthodox on that particular point. Um, and uh, yeah, just as, just as one example that came to mind. It's so helpful, Dr. Bantu, and thank you so much. I feel like your book for me was a window into eschatology even of like a window into one day I, pr I pray, Lord, you know, th the deck will be shuffled and the truth will come to light and we will see who's really the leaders of, um, cr you know, the Christian history. And your example uh, of what we're in today is so important for us to hear is that, you know, there's people in power right now and there's theology that's in power right now. But that doesn't exactly mean that's going to be what's 
glorified in the new heavens and the new earth, that one day we will see the great reckoning of God's people and we'll see who the leaders were. And we will know the names that you have in your book here and we will know the stories uh, correctly. And all the more reason for us today as Christians to engage with work like yours and so much important things. I'm wondering, just as we close, Dr. Bantu, where would you point people other than your amazing books? I know you have a great book actually coming out, um, or a chapter in Dr. Eric Mason's book on urban apologetics, um, which I'm looking forward to very much. So I think, is that the title of the book, Urban Apologetics? Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. And that's got, that's a great collection of resources. You know, like, you know, I have one chapter in there that kind of addresses the, what's called the comedic movement. Um, but there's, you know, Dr. Mason himself has some great chapters in there on Hebrew Israelites, but that's like, that's going to be, you know, that's going to be the go-to manual uh, when it comes to, you know, doing evangelism and apologetics uh, in the black community, in the urban black context of like kind of interreligious communities. I mean, that's just, yeah, that's, that is a, I think a fabulous resource. Um, and then also uh, I would say be on the lookout for another book that I'm working on, another edited volume, which is really kind of like meant to be a companion to a multitude of all peoples, you know, multitude of all peoples is um, really meant to, again, like we said earlier, just kind of introduce people to like, Hey, I'd like to introduce you to these unsung heroes in the church. And then my hope is that as people uh, learn a little bit about these these individuals, and they even get some quotations, uh, you know, that I put in the the book that people will want to go deeper and say, I want to read these people because, as I mentioned earlier, some of this stuff is like some of the earliest just literature of any kind. Wow, just <laughs> Christian, but just literature. Period. So this is this is pivotal for human history. I mean, like Shenouda, for example, was a theologian uh, in the fourth in the fifth century in Egypt, and he's one of the first. He's not just the, one of the first, but he's like he is he is the writer in the history of the Coptic language or Egyptian language. Well, the, the Egyptian language is like one of the oldest languages in the, in, the, in the world. And I think it's so significant to just pause and think about the fact that in one of the oldest languages known to humanity, its, it's single greatest writer was a Christian monk and theologian. Wow. And so, like, you know, that it's just important. People should know his name for just human history. Um, but I mean, certainly for church history and theology. Um, and so, so my hope would be that as people get introduced, they'll want to go deeper and read some of these people. But the problem is that a lot of times, um, and as I teach and share this, people have said to me like, uh, man, it's hard to get these writers because part of, and that's part of the problem is that, you know, again, I mean, you can go on your phone right now and you could, if you wanted to read the writings of Gregory of Nazianzus or John Chrysostom or Thomas Aquinas or Martin Luther, you could probably read their stuff, like most of it on in English translation, just on your phone for free. But I mean, you can't even buy books for some of these African and, and Syrian and, and Asian theologians. Some of them haven't even been translated yet. So this other thing I'm working on now is meant to try to rectify that. And I'm actually editing, co-editing uh, a, a collected volume of all primary texts. And uh, they're all like, you know, African, Middle Eastern and Asian language, Christian theological texts that are all from like the pre-colonial period. So like the first 15 centuries of Christianity in China, Arabia, Georgia, Armenia, uh, you know, Persia, um, uh, Egypt, Nubia, Ethiopia, like all these languages, many of some of which are even being translated for the first time and all being put into one kind of big like anthology or one big book where it can just be a resource for people to just draw upon and read, read ancient, you know, theologians from other perspectives in their own words uh, and in their own writings uh, in English and at an affordable price. So that'll be coming out with University of California Press and uh, you know, COVID slowing it down a little bit, but but hopefully it should be hopefully it should be out in the next couple of years. Uh, and that that's another thing that I hope to hope will be a blessing to to the oh, Thank you so much, Doctor Bantu. Again, guys, if um, you want to pick up his book, the book is called uh, A Multitude of All Peoples. Uh, if you're at Awakening, I've posted about it a lot, quoted from it. And um, Doctor Bantu, thank you, man, for for showing up and for giving us such a rich history lesson in an, in such a short amount of time. I appreciate you uh, you coming through. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you.